0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Donna Don Anderson, and joining me in conversation today is my colleague and friend, Tandy Wong. Hi, everyone. Today we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Wendy Chang, professor of American Studies at Scripps College and a core faculty member of the Intercollegiate Department of Asian American Studies.
2: We have the pleasure of discussing Cheng's latest book, Island X, Taiwanese Student Migrants, Campus Spies and Cold War Activism, which was published by the University of Washington Press in November, 2023. Island X delves into the compelling political lives of Taiwanese migrants who came to the US as students from the 1960s through to the 1980s. Often depicted as compliant model minorities, many were deeply political, shaped by Taiwan's colonial history, and influenced by the global social movements of their times. As activists, they fought to make Taiwanese people visible as subjects of injustice and deserving of self-determination.
1: Under the distorting shadows of Cold War geopolitics, the Kuomintang regime and collaborators across US campuses attempted to control Taiwanese in the diaspora through extra legal surveillance and violence, including harassment, blacklisting, imprisonment and even murder. Drawing on interviews with student activists and extensive archival research, Wendy Chang documents how Taiwanese Americans developed tight-knit social networks as infrastructures for identity formation, consciousness development, and anti-colonial activism. They fought for Taiwanese independence, opposed state persecution and oppression, and participated in global political movements. Raising questions about historical memory and Cold War circuits of power, Island X is a testament to the lives and advocacy of a generation of Taiwanese American activist.
2: In addition to Island X, Wendy Cheng is also the author of The Cheng's Next Door to the Diazes, Remapping Race in Suburban California, and co-author of A People's Guide to Los Angeles. Her articles and creative nonfiction writing have been published in the American Quarterly, Amerasia Journal, Los Angeles Review of Books, and New Bloom, among others. You can find more information at wendycheng.com.
1: Hi, Wendy. Thank you so much for joining us in conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so to get us started, would you tell us a little bit more about how you came to this topic and what inspired you to write this book?
3: Yeah, so this topic was a long, um, a long time coming. I was actually born into it because it's my family history. My parents were graduate students who came to the U.S. from Taiwan um, in the early 1970s. So they were part of that generation of student migrants many of whom became activists, that I write about in this book. And I um, realized at some point in the process of writing the book that this history is actually how we became Taiwanese-American ourselves, because my parents, um, like many of the people I write about in the book, um, they went to university of wisconsin-madison they encountered a lot of other um, taiwanese students there are students from taiwan who identified in in different ways um, and they became um, involved in student associations there um, and then soon became aware that they were being surveilled and for taking a leadership position in one of those organizations, my father was blacklisted. And so they actually never had the intention of staying in the U.S., um, but because of because they got involved in these organizations, um, they ended up not being able to go back to Taiwan, right? And this is the story for many um, Taiwanese of that generation, but it's very little known outside of Taiwanese American communities. Um, and not even, I wouldn't even say that everybody in Different kinds of Taiwanese American communities is aware of this history for various reasons, um, but because once they were blacklisted, they were um, they felt they had nothing to lose, right? So, like many others of their generation, they just grew themselves even more so into organizing for democracy, human rights, you know, for a different kind of future for Taiwan, for the end of martial law, um, and those were the circles that I grew up in. Um, but then the second part of that is, even though this was very much um, my childhood and a shared experience within the Taiwanese American communities that I grew up in, when I went to graduate school and started doing scholarship in ethnic studies and Asian American studies, there was no, um, there was nothing about these histories. Um, there was some, there was, was literature on. Um, Taiwanese migration, right, but it didn't really talk about politics. Um, and and um, Taiwan itself, um, at, at least at the time that I started researching this book, uh, which was 12 years ago, took a long time for reasons we can get into later. Um, there was almost nothing of, of a critical um, history um, of Taiwanese Americans um, within the field itself, so that really interested me too. So it got me thinking about, you know, why is that? You know, and you know, what is it about the field and its particular orientations um, that <clears throat> makes that history not recognized or not legible? And <clears throat> what do I want to do with that? Right. So it was this mix of um, my own family history and the communities that I grew up with and putting that side by side with the relative absence of those histories in Asian American studies, um, in general consciousness, right. Um, and, and so on. So that was, that was the starting point.
2: I love the personal connection that you have with the book and how it, um, moves from a research project that has these, um, questions that are embedded in your own life and then, um, deals with this larger question about various fields of study and this kind Kind of historiographical gap that you're identifying um in which we don't hear very much about um Taiwanese migration in general especially student migration and um all of the different forces that um... Um, structure fields of knowledge such that we have that gap. You actually write in the text that um, Taiwan is often regarded as an insignificant place, yet its marginal and ambiguous status offers many entry points for understanding relationships of power and subject formation beyond a nation state framework. That's a quote from page 10. And so I'm wondering for listeners who are unfamiliar with Taiwan, could you provide some elaboration on what its ambiguous status is? And in particular, what is the difference between Ben and Wei Sungren, and how does it figure in Taiwan's liminal geopolitical position?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. And um, in the quote that you read, um, I'm building from Schumacher's important work, right, where she um she um has done so much to try to place Taiwan in um, critical theory to think about Taiwan as um a place where um, what she and um, Hui Liao call um, layered and serial colonialism, um, and also think critically about its relationship to the US. So I, I would say um, her work has been really important as a um, jumping off point for me. Um, so the ambiguous deaths it's been much more in the news lately, um, but it's still, I mean, it's it's very interesting because most scholars from the U.S. Um, and Europe who have studied Taiwan either come from political science well, um, largely come from political science. right? So they're thinking about um, Taiwan as triangulated between the U.S. and China. And so that is a basis of its ambiguous status today because the official U.S. policy toward Taiwan is... Described as strategic ambiguity, right? Which means that the U.S. um, does neither supports Taiwan independence, nor does it support um, Taiwan's. Unification or reunification, right? Um, those both of those terms are loaded with China, but this comes from directly from a Cold War history, where so much of the world immediately after World War II was divided into communist and anti-communist. Um, Positions, right? So um, the KMT, the Kuomintang or Nationalist Party, lost the civil war in China to the Chinese communists, fled to Taiwan, and set up a government there, claiming to be the one true government of China, right? Um, And the US supported them, right, through military aid, diplomatic recognition, economic aid, you know, um, all kinds of forms of support. but what happened is that this created a new era for Taiwan, um, which was coming out of Japanese colonial rule, right? Uh, and so you asked about Shengren and Wai shengren. So is, uh refers to um, so-called local or self-identified native but not indigenous <laughs> Taiwanese, right, who's... Ancestors came mostly from um, southeastern China during the Qing period, right, from the 1600s to the 1800s. And during that time, Taiwan had a very um, liminal position in relationship to Qing ruled China, right? It was seen as, um, as Emma Tang describes it, right, as a ball of mud, right? This kind of undesirable backwater um, that was kind of. very loosely attached to the Qing empire, right? Um, So people um, who are known as Ren come from, um, ancestors come from that time period and lived under um, Qing rule, um, this liminal Qing rule, and then under the Japanese colonial period, and then under nationalist rule. Um, So, which means people from outside, right, um, refers to um, what um, what is often translated as mainlanders, right, people who came um, with the the nationalists when they fled to Taiwan after losing the Chinese Civil War and ended up constituting about 20% of the population, right, but came right into the ruling structure that the Japanese had been forced to abandon when they lost the war. So this created a a new kind of um, intra-ethnic hierarchy that then became ethnicized in Taiwan. So that is a slice (laughs) of a complicated history, but that um, triangulated relationship between the US and China has persisted with the US acting as a hedge between um, Taiwan and um, claims to Taiwan by the PRC, right? Between the rest of the world, but, um, but maintaining it purposely in this ambiguous or liminal position.
1: Yeah. So I'm thinking a lot about what you're saying, Wendy, and particularly these words surrounding liminality and triangulation and how there are some very obvious parallels to Asian American studies scholarship um, in these terms, right? To think about um, what our positionality is not only kind of on a global or diplomatic scale, but also how that impacts the interpersonal, right? And so one of the things that, you know, we have been talking about in Asian American studies is that Asian American studies is usually seen its activists as those who articulated an internationalist racial consciousness formed in opposition to US racism and overseas imperialism. So quintessential examples of this are, for example, the Third World Liberation Front that created ethnic studies in the US, the campaign to say the Ibe Hotel in San Francisco or civil rights activists like Yuri Kochiyama. So when we're talking in your book about Taiwanese independence activists on U.S. campuses, they don't necessarily fit into this framework. Not only was their critique directed towards Taiwan, but as you note, quote, most Taiwanese student migrants did not develop a sustained critique of the United States itself. And that is from page 46. Yet, the student activists you investigate in this book were radicalized by the same campus environments that shaped quintessential Asian American protests, especially anti-Vietnam War protests. So how do you make sense of this disjuncture between Taiwanese student activism and Asian American activism?
3: Great. Yeah, thank you. That's such an important question for me personally, intellectually, politically, um, and it really shapes one of the central questions of the book um, because Asian-American politics of the type that you're describing are ones that I very much identify with, right? And and um, believe in as part of a necessary intervention into um, different kinds of global hegemony. Um, however, at the same time, I think that um, Asian-American studies at least as it has evolved over time, if not um, in its origins, um, has to guard a bit more conscientiously against um, US centrism um, in um, knowledge formation and political formation and so on. And what that means is not judging the political consciousness formation of different groups by the same measures and so taiwanese student migrants or let's say student migrants from taiwan some of them identified as taiwanese some of them did not during this time period um, they were coming um out of a country that was ruled by martial law right um they were coming um out of an, a transition from um, Japanese colonial rule into nationalist authoritarian rule. Um, and so the immediate goal for many of them was how do we um, topple the KMT, right? How do we end martial law? Um, how do we act effectively against this authoritarian government? And so many of them um, came into their political goals with that um, immediate and urgent goal in mind. And, um, and so everything that they were reading and doing um, sometimes made for strange alliances, right? Because they could share that goal but not necessarily agree on um, what they thought about, how they felt about socialism or how they felt about capitalism, right? Um, So there are alliances of individuals who have very different politics, um, but share that that goal during this time period on US campuses. And I think that's a really important thing to, a really important context to bring to understanding um, the Taiwanese migrant politics or Taiwanese uh, political consciousness formation in the US. Um, I think that the question of the US, the critique of the US, um, has to do with a lot of different things. Um, one is that this generation of um, student migrants came under the conditions that Madeline Shu has described really well in her book right? of selective migration. Um, most of them were. Um, graduate students in STEM fields, right, um, from the 60s to the 80s. And so um, that is um, not, um, that doesn't have a, a like a simple trajectory because um, in Taiwan, the very best students of those generations um, were generally um, you know, uh, uh, channeled into um, STEM fields, right? And they didn't necessarily see that as apolitical or non-political, right? They saw that as um, as a natural background for people who would become leaders of Tony society in one way or another, right? So it it wasn't necessarily that those fields were not political, but that in their selective migration to the United States, they became part of an upward um, class um, uh, status, right, even if they came from working class backgrounds. um, They experienced um, upward mobility coming into the U.S., um, and then in the U.S. because of language barriers, cultural barriers, and so on, right, they were not necessarily connected to people with other kinds of class backgrounds in the ways they might have been if they had stayed in Taiwan, right? So there's a kind of class selectivity that starts to happen. Um, And then also, again, that martial law authoritarian context is really important because they did, um, to some extent, experience significantly more freedom in the US than they had experienced growing up under authoritarian rule in Taiwan, right? And this meant something to them. Um, so interestingly, my, um, my father, right? So the first people I interviewed for this book were my parents. <laughs> um, and I should also say that I had to, um, this is not at all a straightforward representation of <laughs> my family history and what I understood of those politics. I had to do a lot of unlearning of those politics too. Um, but I don't know, why it happened this way but my parents did end up being um, some of the some very significant interviews for me and so the way my dad put it is that um, Taiwanese student migrants experienced came into um, what he described as a contradictory but fantastic (laughs) um, set of circumstances in the U.S. right so fantastic in that sense of you know so my father um, Described coming to University of Wisconsin in nineteen in the early nineteen seventies and seeing Vietnamese students coming from Vietnam who were critical of the U.S. Right, and this is another example of that um, that people's consciousnesses are not determined by the circumstances through which they come to the U.S. Right, and so he encountered these Vietnamese students who were critical of the U.S. Um, and he was just totally floored by that right as as this fantastic thing but then it was contradictory, right? Because the U.S. Um, was the same entity, the U.S. state was the same entity that was giving them the opportunity to come to the U.S., experience these greater freedoms, experience greater safety in life, um, experience access to um, the materials that could form their critique um, and so on. Um, but I, I don't think, um, so, so I think, they were able to um, come into a wide sphere of politics that were um, based on Chinese language circles, right? So they were interacting with students coming from Hong Kong, they were interacting with some Chinese Americans. um, So in that sense, it was very global, but they weren't always able to make connections to or um, be reached out to by non-Chinese speaking groups, right? And this is also um, because because Taiwan is Republic of China was seen as an ally of the U S right. So they didn't have the same kind of cachet, that issue of legibility, right. Uh, They might be interested in other groups, but those other groups weren't reaching out to them.
0: Uh, This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory
2: Your book does such a great job of grounding us in the specificity of um, the Taiwanese student migrant context Um, and uh, I think it's just so important um, exactly as you outlined to understand where these students are coming from and how they encountered the US and what exactly it was that they um, were creating political alliances and coalitions to change. In chapter one of your book, um, you use the heuristic of infrastructures of activism and surveillance to help explicate some of these contexts, um, which you use as a term to refer to networks of students and spies that enabled and restricted political activism in different ways. Can you explain for our listeners some of these infrastructures? What was it like for Taiwanese students arriving on U.S. campuses, and why was so much activism happening on Midwestern campuses, especially? Thank you
3: for that question. Um, So... One thing that that selective educational migration uh, created unintentionally um, was a very strong, already established set of relationships among um, student migrants who were coming from Taiwan during this time period. And so this had to do with the educational system in Taiwan, um, which tracked the highest scoring students (laughs) with each other right starting from junior high and into high school and then once you applied for a specific department, right, you had to score a certain score to get into that department. And then you would be placed within, um, you know, whatever, say, like some of the top scoring students would be in um, chemical engineering or physics, right, at National Taiwan University, um, and so on. And so the result of this is that some of the students um, that ended up on US campuses in these um, STEM departments. Um, had known each other since childhood right or junior high and also Taiwan was not a you know as it was not a big place right so um if they didn't know each other directly sometimes it's a matter of one or two degrees of separation right um and so they felt like they had a sense of where they were coming from, right? A lot of them could remember each other from um, younger versions of themselves. They knew each other's families, right? Um, And so this made it easy for them to create a sense of trust and um, shared context. when they were arriving on those campuses, you know. um, But again, like I said, they didn't have, they were really great at organizing, and so they didn't even have to know each other directly. They would arrive on the campuses and make directories of students from Taiwan. And then as soon as a new person arrived, somebody would go pick them up, right? (laughs) And maybe they would be one or two degrees separated, right? Um, And they would immediately be enfolded within this um, student association structure um, which was a bit more complicated because there were um, two to three different student associations, right, which then started to delineate some of the politics, right, whether students from Taiwan joined the Chinese Student Association, um, which was um, broadly pro-KMT, right, and often infiltrated by KMT agents, um, or the um, Taiwanese Student Associations, which identified as Taiwanese, right, and, and, became, and were very much on the radar of the KMT as as um, as um, subversive, right, um, and then sometimes there was a third student organization that was um, that was pro-communist, right, and interested in the PRC and so on. Um, so, because of this, these tight networks that were established um, by the educational system and by selective migration. Um, they were able to organize themselves really easily and also have a basis of trust for um, often very risky interactions like smuggling information or radio equipment or <laughs> declarations of, you know, Taiwanese rights and human in- independence, right, through through these shared circles. Um, so that was part of it. And then the reason why um, it ended up so much of this happened on the midwest so hot spots for taiwanese student activism university of wisconsin right um kansas state university was another big one um was uh also had to do with these distinctions between bun and the white um because Bunshengren tended to be more working class lower middle class um during this time period and Wai Xiongren, well, not uniformly, the white children who are coming to the US, many more of them tended to have more elite, uh, have more elite family backgrounds. Um, and so they might be able to go to a more um, prestigious universities, right? Um, Columbia, right, um, on the East Coast or in California. Um, the students who were coming to the Midwest were often some of these best students, but they were coming to places that were offering them scholarships TA ships and RA ships, they were coming to places that were offering them um, to pay in-state tuition, right, instead of international student tuition, right? And for some of these students who um for whom uh, coming to the US was, you know, their their family's entire life savings, right? Um, these were really important things. So um, so especially Bensheng and um, native or local Taiwanese students tended to cluster at these um, big public universities in the Midwest that were offering them more support.
1: Yeah, I feel like you know I have many thoughts about the Midwest that perhaps would detract from the conversation's uh, trajectory. <laughs> I
3: think as it is to the conversation, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so maybe that could be a separate episode—a um, conversation yeah. around the Midwest and Taiwanese international students. Um, but I guess to kind of think about uh, the next chapter of the book, right? Chapter two, which outlines the complex political positions taken up by diasporic Taiwanese leftists. So while mainstream while the mainstream of Taiwanese independence activists saw the People's Republic of China or the leftist ideology and Chinese-ness as opposed to Taiwanese-ness as all incompatible with an independent Taiwan the activists you examined thought quite differently could you outline some of these positions taken up by these activists and how they understood their relationship to the Chinese Communist Party Taiwan's ruling Kuomintang party and leftism in general
3: Okay, so uh, um, this actually relates to the earlier question about um, kind of uh, prototypical Asian-American politics and activism um, and the place or the politics of Taiwanese students. Because so one of the things that was going on on US campuses, um, in the especially in the 60s and into the 70s, So there's opposition to the war in Vietnam, right? And then there's also uh, massive interest in Maoism and what's happening in the PRC among young people all over the world, right? Um, And so what I found when I started to do this research is that although the um, Chinese Communist Party and Taiwanese independence activists are seen to be mutually Um, exclusive categories today, right, as part of those hardened binaries of of the Cold War, Um, during this time, they were not actually positioned as enemies, you know, um, especially in the late 1960s and into the um, late 1970s, um, because they shared a common enemy, right? And their common enemy during that time was the KMT, the Kuomintang and so um the the prc um the chinese communist represented by the chinese communist party was very much trying to recruit um taiwan independence activists um to their cause right so um a record that my um brother found in my parents' house when they when they packed up the house and moved away is like a propaganda record right that says you know like the people of Taiwan are brothers right Um, trying to enfold them within um, within their um, global politics right they were very much making an appeal um, to to the global left right and um, Taiwan people in Taiwan um, who were ruled by the authoritarian KMT were very much seen as part of that possible fold, right? And so um, something that really interested me is that um, a lot of Taiwan independence activists during that time um, were also interested in the PRC, right? And so in chapter five, I talk about the case of Chen Wencheng, who was a um, young statistics professor at Carnegie Mellon who had gone to University of Michigan for his PhD. And he um, was uh, tragically murdered while he was in the custody of the um, of the Taiwan Garrison Command on a return trip to Taiwan in 1981, and he's typically understood as a martyr for the cause of ta- Taiwan independence and democracy. Um, but what I found out when I dug into his politics a little more deeply is that he actually um, was very interested in the PRC and actually dedicated his PhD dissertation to the people of China and to um, the working class, right? And, but this is a narrative and politics that um, has that is too complex, right? For the way um, that those paths diverged after this time period, um, but it wasn't uncommon, right? It was a minority, but it wasn't uncommon. Right. Um, so other people I had interviewed um, similarly were trying to sort out the appeal of socialism, the appeal of communism, the appeal of um, gender equality, right? Um, and all of these things that Maoism offered, right? Um, and some of them, um, some students from Taiwan did become supporters of the Chinese Communist Party and the PRC, right? Either only during that time or even still to this day. Right, but those histories um, are seen as so um, uh, unsayable, um, right, or illegible, right, that they're not usually talked about as part of the same history. Um, so, what was happening on these campuses, many of them on the Midwest, was that you know students would arrive and they'd immediately be um, caught up in this very vibrant Sinophone. Global Sinophone sphere of political learning, right? So, um, they would hit up all the East Asian libraries and read everything they could, right, in Chinese about the PRC, about Taiwanese history, right, everything that they could get a hold of, um, and um, and and the um, some Taiwanese students even went to visit the PRC. Right. Um, And they wrote about um, their relationships to China versus Taiwan and their politics and so on. So I really wanted to put those histories back together, um, not necessarily as a way of um, disrupting of, of not necessarily as a way of saying, hey, you know, Taiwan should be part of China, right, because I don't believe that, (laughs) Um, but to put Taiwanese back into that sphere of global politics, right, because I think a lot of the ways the politics has evolved limits Taiwan independence to an, an ethnic nationalism, rather than a kind of politics that was worked out through engagement with global politics, of which Maoism was very important during that time period.
2: In chapters three, four, and five of the book, you actually provide us with case studies of specific activists whose life stories reveal some of the dynamics of Taiwanese diasporic activism that you've just discussed um, throughout the Cold War. And I know you mentioned Tung Wun in chapter five, but i wonder if you could take us through these other figures and what they reveal for you about the larger networks of activism and surveillance that these um, student migrants were embedded in.
3: Great yeah, thank you for that question. Um, and I want to kind of interject an an invitation here, <laughs> which is that um chapters three and three, four, and five actually came out of both my abilities and my limitations as an Asian Americanist because when I first um so I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that this book took me twelve years to um, not exactly to write but to, but to finish right from the first interview to when it was finally published and part of it was because I had to change the shape of the project so initially um, I was really interested in the kind of politics that we just talked about and um, one thing I didn't say is that um, Taiwanese were not just you know um, hanging out in social events and doing um, certain um like act, actions, right? But they're also publishing quite a lot of political material on their own, right? So, um, the um, National Tsunzi University Library has a collection of over a hundred publications, political publications that were created by Taiwanese um, outside of Taiwan, you know, from the 60s to the 90s, especially, right? And it's such an amazing archive, um, but most of those publications are in Chinese which is which makes sense right but it also meant that i as someone who is not fluent in chinese could not do justice to the nuances of what what they're doing, right? So I had um, some of them translated, right? And I do refer to them as well as I can, but I was not able to um, create a whole book out of that, right? So that's an invitation to scholars who do have those (laughs) skills to do that work, right? Because um, there are these incredible archives that have not yet been um, really um, examined in detail by scholars who have this kind of um, critical, who can do this kind of critical, um, complete bilingual, bicultural analysis, or multi, multilingual, multicultural could be. Um, so what I did, um, which worked for me, was to look at specific cases of people, of student migrants who were surveilled. While they were in the US by the KMT surveillance apparatus, right? And this is another contradiction of that relationship between the US and Taiwan because this was done with the knowledge and tacit permission of the United States, right? So um, this was very like micro surveillance, right? Um, People were being tailed wherever they went, right? Recordings between um, people. in the US and Taiwan were being recorded and transcribed beta, right? And you can see a lot of this material in the National Archives in Taiwan. Um, so, I looked at specific cases of people who, based on surveillance that happened in the U.S., um, were then met with arrest or imprisonment and, in Sunwen's case, Sun case, murder in Taiwan um, because of that uh, per- permissiveness that the U.S., the relationship between the U.S. and, and Taiwan as the Republic of China um, created, right, that, um, that student migrants in the U.S. were not beyond the reach of the KMT state. Um, And what this also meant was that those archives were much more accessible to me, right, Um, that most of a lot of the materials were in English, Um, I could really dig into university archives, I could look at, for example, in chapter four, which looks at uh, Tsunyushi, the case of Tsunyushi, which happened out of Hawaii, um, the Honolulu Advertiser and the other newspapers in Honolulu covered his case in detail, right, hundreds of newspaper articles, um, and then also Library of Congress, the archives of um, of Congresswoman Patsy Takemoto Mink, right, so, um, it, so part of it is a, a, a sort of disciplinary, um, disciplinary shaping, right, but also that I grew up with some of these stories um Tan Wen right was a household name for my family and for many other Taiwanese communities because um he was of their generation right so um my uh, so many people within those Taiwanese american communities knew him and loved him and identified with and were horrified by what happened to him you know um so In each chapter, I look at how that specific case um, reveals um, particular dynamics of Taiwanese student migration. So um, chapter three looks at the case of Huang Qiming, um, who, unlike the majority of Taiwanese um, students during that time, um, uh, went into area studies, right? (laughs) So he was studying... Education in Taiwan under the Japanese colonial period, and this was true of a lot of the slightly er- earlier generation of Taiwanese student migrants of that time, who were born um, under, born towards the end of Japanese colonial rule, right? So they had that multilingual capacity; they could read um, and speak Japanese and Chinese, you know. And then they came in, so so they were kind of primed to um, to be a- uh, able to. Um, function in Asian studies. Um, but what really interested me about that is that Huang Ming at University of Wisconsin, Madison, um, he was embedded in all of these um, activist circles and networks that I write about that were happening um, in Madison. But he was also the research assistant for Douglas Mendel, who was a political scientist who wrote one of the only you know, full length studies of Taiwanese politics, um, political formation in the US, called um, uh, The Politics of Foremost Nationalism. Um, but what was really interesting to me when I dug into the archive is how much of Huang Ming is in Mendel's book, <laughs> right? Because Mendel himself, he spoke Japanese, but not Chinese, right? So he really relied on Taiwanese students um, to do his research and translation for him, and Huang um, he was he was also kind of a character. <laughs> like he wasn't totally trusted by even his friends um, who had known him for a long time and his fellow students. Um, he seemed to make a lot of bad decisions, right? So even when he was in prison. Um, in Taiwan, he wrote letters, um, you know, writing down the names of, you know, different people that he had associated with, you know, so there was speculation that maybe he was a spy or a double agent, right? Um, but then he also met with a very tragic end, which is that he died in a car accident. He kept trying to come back to the US after he was imprisoned, prison and, um, was not able to. And then he ultimately died in a suspicious car accident in the late 1970s um, that a lot of um, people assumed to be the work of the KMT, right? Because they had done other kinds of murders in this way, right, suspicious car accidents. Um, But that car accident happened after he dropped Douglas Mandel off at a speaking engagement (laughs) um, at a university in Taiwan, right? So I was really interested in him him as this sort of like shadow figure in that history of area studies um, as written by um, largely white men who were many of whom were diplomats, right? Who had participated in those um, those uh, violent Cold War relationships between the U.S. And, and other countries that they were in. So that chapter is a slice of that history. Um, and then the chapter on uh, um, similarly. I mean, one of my disciplinary backgrounds is I'm a geographer, so I'm always paying attention to the specific regional context, the local context. You know how um, we can understand. Um, the different scales of relationships that are happening in any given place. Um, so chapter four focuses a lot on the east-west center in Hawaii, and Tandy, you might be interested in it because it's a sort of quintessential institution of soft power, right? So it's established in 1959 in the same year as um, US statehood for Hawaii, right? Um, Lyndon Johnson is there wearing a lei breaking ground. <laughs> um, and. And it is um, its explicit purpose um, and setting is to present um, Hawaii as um, this like multicultural melting pot, right? That shows um, that capitalism and democracy um, yield the conditions, right? That the rest of the world should follow, right? Um, And then it recruited um, students from um, got. Places all around the world, but only places that were, you know, U.S. allies, right? So only students from Republic of China, not China, during this time period, um, and um, and so a lot of students who went there um, received a quite different education from what was intended, <laughs> right? Oh, and specifically, they were um, recruiting students from Asia and the Pacific Islands, right, because of Hawaii's location and positioning. Um, So the Tanishi case comes out of that context. Um, And again, I was interested in this idea of students who um, are educated in something quite different than what was intended, (laughs) right? And so you see these different layers of internationalist um, uh, activism that come out of his case, right? From liberal to more radical left, right? Um, And that comes directly out of the history of Hawaii, right? The sort of centrist, liberal, Asian American-led Democratic Party to the more radical um, worker um, communist, you know, um, sugar plantation kind of organizing that that also was coming out of Hawaii at the time, right? And all these factions came together to try to support Sun after he participated in a couple um protests um against the war in Vietnam um and uh may have read some communist literature in the east west center library right and so there was another Taiwanese student there who was working as an informer right as a spy in the library who was keeping track of who was reading what right um so that chapter traces in a lot of detail all the different groups that got involved in this and also how um activists in Japan became involved also, right? And for activists in Japan, um, their understanding of the case was um, because Sun Ishii was extradited from Japan to Taiwan. I'm, yes, he was extradited from Japan to Taiwan, right? So their the ac- Japanese activist critique was of um, Japan's mistreatment of its former colonials, right? And of Chinese, Taiwanese, and Koreans. Um, so each chapter kind of just unfolds all of these different sets of relationships and dynamics that i want to show that many student migrants were also um part of and yeah and then the singleton chapter has its own set of like totally interesting dynamics that also have to do with us um arms export <laughs> um, so but um i'll I'll pause there and see if we want to move on to something else or keep going
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's hard to I, one if hard to address a question when we've condensed three chapters into it. (laughs) Um, Also, just because of the amount, the breadth of different interventions and possibilities that come out of these three chapters, I think, like you mentioned at the beginning of your response, offer some really excellent opportunities for scholars to extend this work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so Unfortunately, we're almost at time of our conversation, but before we go, I thought maybe we could kind of pick up on that theme, which is, you know, you have this great opening for future scholars to really take seriously um, Taiwan in Asian American studies. And I guess, where are you kind of going from here?
3: Yeah, um, so... First, about that opening, I'm really excited about what's coming next from other scholars, (laughs) especially scholars, I would say, who are like um, half a generation or a generation younger than me. You know, I teach a class at the Claremont Colleges called Cold War Taiwanese America, and I'm so excited about what um, generations that came of age um, after martial law, what's possible for them, and also there's just so much, you know, back and forth. Um, global connections that are possible now that weren't from my generation, you know. So, and intellectually and politically, I think that's really exciting, and we're already seeing some of this scholarship starting to come out. Um, so, very excited about that, and um, happy to have you know opened the door <laughs> in some ways, right? Um, out of this very limited um, English language scholarship that was that had been available um, for me, I'm pivoting a little bit to think less centrally about human beings (laughs) because human beings are so complicated (laughs) um not that other things aren't complicated but you know uh i am i have been working i already started working on a project while i was in the midst of this book um about histories of gardens and plant migration As they are implicated in imperialism, colonialism, racism, and so on. Um, But also, you know, just to think about um, the life of plants, you know, and these life worlds that are beyond um, the kinds of things that humans often get, many humans often get stuck on, (laughs) you know, spending all their time and energy on. so part of that was looking at the history of camellias at this council Gardens. Um, and most of that, the basis of that world-renowned camellia garden came from um forced sales of um camellias from Japanese American flower growers before they were interned, right? So I've been working with this council Gardens too and um family members, right, from those two families um to think about how to um how to present that history, how to think about that history, what we can learn from that history. Um, and then I'm also working on some creative nonfiction writing about my, uh, again, again about my family history, but in a more creative nonfiction way, um, about, um, generations of my family that worked in, um, Northeastern Taiwan in Yilan and Luodong and in the mountains up there, um, to, um, up in the cypress forests during the Japanese colonial period. Um, So I'm thinking about those trees, right? Um, And about family history, relationships to land um, and so on, but also how so many of those trees and plants um, migrated like human beings from, you know, Asia to the United States and um, still live in these colonial gardens, (laughs) you know? So it's very broad, but, you know, broadly plants migration colonialism life worlds
1: (laughs) beyond the human that sounds so interesting also just because you know i haven't been in or i haven't had many opportunities to be in conversation with geographers so to see Mm -hmm. how you're interpreting these um, concepts and spaces particularly are are really fascinating um so Thank you so much again, Wendy, for sharing this hour with us and for being in conversation um, with Tandy and I about your book, Island X. I know that there's so many wonderful opportunities and ideas that are coming out of this text. And I really hope that people who are interested, um, not just in say Taiwan and Taiwanese American studies, but broadly Asian American studies, uh, give this book a
3: chance. So thank you, Wendy. Thank you so much to both of you, it's been a pleasure.